What is happening, PostShifters? Welcome back to another episode of the PostShift Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Sean Sewell. And this is a little preface that I don't usually do, but uh, this is an episode with Jackie Summers that we did for a live stream, and we just had some connectivity issues. So if you hear a little clicky, click, click, and a few weird edits, that's just me trying to clean up some of the spaces. But I hope you enjoy this episode, guys. Jackie was a phenomenal guest, and I hope you really enjoy this one, guys. Have a good week. See you soon. Bye. Welcome to the Potion Podcast, your raw look at the hospitality industry, brought to you by SHC. Podcast, because I'm your host, Sean Sewell. Um, this one was a really crazy, another impromptu live stream. So if you are tuning in, thank you very much. Congratulations. You've stumbled upon a live stream that I we randomly scheduled on a, on a Wednesday morning um, after a bounce back of emails. Um, I have the ridiculously talented Jackie Summers on the show today. He is CSO, uh, CEO, CSO, CEO of Sorrel. Um, Jack from Brooklyn is his brand. Um, he created Sorrel in 2012. Um, uh, just a ridiculously amazing story. Award-winning writer, author, speaker, um, the very first black American to ever get a liquor license in the US in 2012, which is just insane to think that that was the first milestone of his, like of this journey. Um, I'm really looking forward to this because it's an outside looking in and then jumping into the water as well. So like, I think Jackie was always looking at the hospitality industry from like outside the pool. And then all of a sudden jumps in the pool and then starts splashing around and changing the game. Um, his liqueur is ridiculous. I have a massive uh, love affair with Sorel, uh, the hibiscus tea liqueur. Um, I used to make my own before it was available. Uh, it's still not available in Canada, but we're going to get to that. Um, thank you so much, Jackie, for joining me. Um, I'm really, really stoked to have you. Um, I, I, I talk about this a lot, um, that I'm still that 26-year-old Australian kid who moved to Canada in twenty in 2006 and still fanboys out so hard on, on my guests because I am completely grateful and blown away with the fact that I have an opportunity to ever have an opportunity to have a conversation with people like yourself. Listen, I got to tell you, to hear you describe it, like, if I didn't know me, I'd be impressed. But I know me too well to, to – I'm too acquainted with my own failings and flaws to ever take myself seriously. I'm just going to come – I'm going to start hiring myself as hype, a hype man for all the people before their seminars at Tails. And- <laughs> like a big, like, clock, like, flavor flavor. <laughs> So um, I'm a big comic book nerd. I always sort of lead onto this. What, yeah. What's your origin story like? Where where did where did you sort of get your start, and how did you get this journey of going from Wall Street advertising, magazine publishing, to being one of the most prolific thought leaders in our hospitality industry now? Oh, it's a great origin story if you like comic book stories. Uh, <laughs> I had a near death experience in 2010. My doctor found the tumor the size of a golf ball inside my spine. And he said, you're probably going to die. What he said was, you have a 95% chance of death and a 50% of paralysis if you live. You should organize your paperwork. Wow. I lived. <laughs> but that shit will adjust your perspective. I can curse, right? Yes, of course. Oh, this is going to be some fucking curse. <laughs> you can curse as much as, as you want. That shit will adjust your perspective. Given the new outlook, I thought to myself, what do I really want to do with my life? And I got to tell you, the thing I wanted to do more than anything else in the world was day drink. <laughs> I, l- listen, there are people with long histories of distilling families, noble traditions, 
I wanted to be able to hang out with cool people all day, talk about things that mattered, have good food and good booze, and I wanted to monetize that shit. <laughs> and when I couldn't think of who would pay me to day drink, I thought to myself, I'll launch my own liquor label. How hard can it be? <laughs> yeah, how hard could how hard could it be? So where did where did the idea for Jack from Brooklyn and and the Sorel liqueur and stuff like that come from? Okay, these are two fun different stories. Jack from Brooklyn comes because uh, if anyone tells you they want to launch a liquor brand uh, and they don't have a million dollars, I tell them you're not serious. I didn't have a million dollars when I launched my liquor brand. What I did had have was a very popular blog. I was a blogger in the relationship relationship space, writing a blog called Fucking in Brooklyn about my dating life. And the blog was getting a half million page views a year. So I thought people who like reading about fucking probably like to drink too. I'm going to turn my blog audience into my liquor audience and name the company Jack from Brooklyn. And I already had a media presence. So that's really? what... That's what, yes, true story. That's where the name of the company comes from. Uh, Sorel, there's a beverage that every Caribbean family family makes. It's been around for centuries called Sorrel, S-O-R-R-E-L. Hibiscus flowers, rum, other spices. It depends on what island you go to. Like if you went to Jamaica, you'd get ginger and cardamom and allspice. If you went to Trinidad and Tobago, you would get cinnamon and nutmeg. Again, every Caribbean, Caribbean family thinks they make the best version of this. So, of course, I thought I made the best version of it. But no one had ever bottled it and put it a commercial version out. So I told myself, I'm going to be, you know, I have no money. I have no experience. I know no one in the liquor industry. Again, how hard can it be? <laughs> so, uh, you, you can see I'm uniquely broken in that yeah. way. Yeah, I, I I can see you love the challenge. Like I you see know, you love the challenge. I didn't think of it as a challenge. I did. I literally didn't see it that way. I thought to myself, I want to do this, so I'm going to do this. And that was it. Yeah. So, with the development of the the liqueur and and sort of the the procurement of your licensing and stuff. How long did it take you to develop the the liqueur and get it to where you were happy with it? So that's two different things. I will tell you that it took 14 months to go from concept to on shelves, which is an insane insane amount of time. Um, Usually the big companies, year and a half with all the resources. Uh, But again, I'm broken in that I don't know what I can't do. Uh, how many tries? 624. Wow. I did 623 versions. Like I'm not, the, And the joke I tell at this point is, if you think you have an idea that's so good, no one's thought of it, it's probably a terrible idea. There's probably a reason no one has done this before. So around the 500 try, around the 500 failure, I was starting to get a uh, I was starting to wonder if it was, you know, a worthwhile endeavor. 623 tries before I found the version that is shelf-stable, can't be broken. You can open it, close it, come back in three years, boil it, nuke it, freeze it, leave it in the back of the car, good to go. 
And this is all in 14, like that's a lot in 14 months. Like even if you just do the math, like of what, how many weeks are in 14 months divided by 623, you look, you're banging off, you're banging off recipe after recipe after recipe. Well, here's the thing. I, I knew immediately going into this, you can, like, I could make this thing, but you have no idea where it's going to go once it leaves your warehouse. Is it going to be in the back of someone's hot ass truck? Is it going to be sitting in a freezing, in, in a freezer somewhere? Like, you have no control. So you have to make sure that this product is going to be able to stand up for wherever it lands. Because once it leaves your warehouse, you don't know what's going to happen to it. So I so I literally would make batches every – I poured thousands of gallons down the drain. Thousands. Make a batch, put it in bottles, and then torture it. Put one out in the sun, nuke one batch, freeze, freeze oh, wow. one. Bottle. And, yeah – and it's not like there's anything else on the market that you could sort of like sit beside as an example. Like a lot of the times when you put out a new gin or you put out a new whiskey, you have like something like a benchmark in the industry that sort of, oh, I taste this. I like it, but it tastes a little fake or I like it, but it's this. There was nothing. Yeah, there was no roadmap. There was no roadmap. How much influence did your mom have? Because we're talking about your mom off uh, camera. Um, <laughs> did your mom taste a lot of the batches? No, she did not, because most of the first were pretty terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and you just couldn't take that sort of rejection from your mother. <laughs> so I'll tell you something about Caribbean moms. Uh, they're not subtle, but they're not subtle in a way that you need to think about it to know you've been insulted. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. My mom was at my last birthday party here in this home, uh, and I keep wanting to go last year, but it was two years ago because we all know because no one went anywhere last year. And my landlord stopped in and, you know, he got a little drunk and he was talking some shit. And he said something to the effect of. Well, women have two things over men, cooking and sex. And my mom overheard him and like casually. She, so she goes, oh, so you must be a good cook then. <laughs> <laughs> just a mic drop from your 80 year old mom on your landlord <laughs> like i don't want i don't want that kind of smoke from her no 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 and i did not test batches on her i didn't i didn't so let's talk through the process because um it it, it is a terribly unique situation that should not exist but as the the first black american to get a liquor license ever like ever, which is just, it's just insane to even think that that sort of mentality still exists in 2012. What was, what did this sort of start opening your eyes to the industry and how the industry sort of works and, and the sort of culture that we have here in the hospitality industry? So I, I got to tell you, I wasn't trying to be a first anything. I was trying to eat or specifically I was trying to drink. Drink. <laughs> I didn't know that there were no other black people doing this. I, it wasn't a consideration. And it wasn't until I got about a year into it when I realized, holy shit, there's no one else doing this. Uh, and it wasn't until George Floyd got killed last year that anybody actually cared. Uh, yay, racism is real. But uh, my was a research scientist in the 50s doing some of the first studies on the effects of cigarette smokes on lab animals. 
uh, at a time when they weren't hiring black people or women. She wasn't trying to be, um, you know, trailblazer. She was trying to feed a family of five. My dad was a jazz musician, uh, played with Armstrong, Basie, Count, the Duke, Sarah Vaughan, Billy Holly, played with all of them. What's trying to trailblaze? Trying to eat. So I don't think of what I was doing as trying to trailblaze. Uh, I was. I was trying to figure out how I was going to monetize my skills, and that was it. I wasn't trying to carve new paths. I'm glad new paths exist. Uh, but yeah, the systemic barriers are significant. They're significant. With with the creation and the the marketing and everything, um, you launched in 2012. Huge! I I I, I think Paul Pakult was in a clubhouse room the other day, and like you started talking about Sorrel, and all of a sudden, like all the microphones started clicking on. Like, oh, yeah, I love that! I, I I love that! When are we gonna get some more? When all this sort of stuff? So when you launched, um, again, I sort of look at it and I'm like, you you picked an obscure category of not just a spirit, but like unless you're from the Caribbean, a lot of people wouldn't know this product at all. And then you launched to absolute massive fanfare. Were you just blown away? Cause you were a one, you were a one man show. Did you think, Oh, I'm going to put out this product. And then all of a sudden everybody wants it again. There we go. I'm broken in that way. In that in my mind, I knew I was right. And so, yeah, obviously with entrepreneurship, you need to with have that sort of mentality. Did you keep up? Did okay. you keep up with the production? Did you keep up with the production as as quickly as it was going out the door? You launched in 2012, massive fanfare for a, a liqueur and, and a flavor profile that a lot of people didn't know about. And you were a one-man show, and all of a sudden you're in Brooklyn, in Red Hook, making this little liqueur, and all of a sudden everybody wants it. Yeah, in my mind, I always thought people would love this because I love it. Here's a rule I believe. The best way to, is to create them. Uh, so I saw other people doing gins, but existed. I saw people doing whiskeys and rums, but those existed. Like, convince a retailer to give you shelf space next to Bacardi, to, you know, Beef Feeder, you know, next to Johnny Walker. It seemed to me the only way I I could guarantee on the shelves was to have something that was distinct, something you couldn't get anywhere else. And so, as as an an entrepreneur, I think hospitality entrepreneurship is... No, nothing at all. Like uh, we adapt, we overcome. That's the nature of the beast. Uh, Welcome back, everybody. A few technical difficulties is going to be, you're going to be in and out of streams all day long. Um, So I'm going to try and get my thoughts together and go back. So you do 624 variations of the sorrel liqueur. You bring it to market and you were saying that, you could see you had to do something that had an authentic story that tied back to you and someone that nobody else had or had known of or tasted before. Um, so you bring it out on the market. Everybody's loving it, which I, I think hibiscus is an underrated flavor, to be honest with you. I think hibiscus flower is people just don't really understand how good it is. Nope. They do and not. So they taste it, they're like, for some reason, it's. A, I feel like it's got a, um, a very familiar, like a raspberry fruit leather that you would have had as a kid. Like that sort of, it, it takes you back to your childhood, even if you didn't grow up in the Caribbean. But there's a flavor there that you're just like, oh, I know this. So all of a sudden, you're a one-man show. Not, not a huge amount of experience. You, you, As you said, you're broken. You have no idea when to stop. 
or when to actually think things through. It's just like, oh, no, I can do this. It's a a self-sense of complete and utter devotion to the, the path you're taking. So everybody wants it. What do you, what's your, what, what, were you, what were you, what was your reaction when all of a sudden you just gained order after order after order? Well, here's the first thing I should say is uh, officially we were two people, myself and my VP, Summer Lee, who's amazing and the most trustworthy human being in the entire spirits industry and who I wouldn't do things without. Uh, we're a great one-two team. Uh, but I will tell you that if I went to any of, if I, if I went to any liquor company and told them, that I wanted to introduce a flavor that no one ever tasted before. No one, no one would have taken me seriously. Nobody. So you have to know in your heart that the thing that you want to do is the thing that you want to do. And stick to that until everyone catches up to you. Uh, I, Again, I did expect that people would like this because I liked it. Uh, so a high level of uh, trust in myself. The really weird part, though, was going around to these places. Uh and introducing myself as the owner of a brand because no one had ever seen a black brand on it before. It, the, the most often, the most, the most, the most often was I got the response of deliveries was in the back. And I was like, I'm not here to make delivery. I'm the owner. And people just didn't get it at first. So how did you break, how did you break over that, that uh, subconscious barrier of a lot of people that, one, you're here to taste some stuff, and two, you really, really should try this shit because it's really fucking epic. Uh, just shoe leather. <laughs> I mean, it was just me walking up and down the street. Uh, again, concentric circles based... I started off in, in circles based on where the distillery was located, just going to places and going, hey, I'm your neighbor. I make this. Want to try some? And built around, built a, a, a local following and grew that I mean, really, we built out of Brooklyn into Manhattan and, and went from there. Yeah, because I think on Clubhouse, there's a conversation you and Allison were saying that literally that was your, that was your, that was what, you, that was your goal was how many, how many steps can I get in a day? How many bars can I visit? How many liquid lips can I get to just over and over and over again? Yep. It then, wasn't unusual to hit 20 places a day. Wow. Wow. And were you, confidence aside, were you surprised just how how many people jumped on board with it and became champions for it so quickly? Or was, wait, I should I should preface that question. Was it quickly or did, did it take longer than you felt it would should have? So we I launched Sorel at the Manhattan Cocktail Classic back when that was still a thing. And for those who missed out, it was just the most extravagant cocktail party you've ever seen. They rented out the New York Public Library and tuxes and gowns and the the hoi polloi, like the all of New York society was out for this thing. They had trapeze artists, they had clowns, they had tattoo artists. I mean, brands spent a fortune, a fortune for this. I was in the basement in a corner with a little six-foot table and a, and a black uh, tablecloth. They gave everyone these little NFC risk communicators so that if you liked a cocktail, you could tap on a box on the table. That's cool. And it would uh, register so that, pe- so that they could track what people were drinking for the night. I was the only person in the entire building not 
pouring cocktails. I was pouring two ounce shots of Sorel. I poured nine cases of two ounce shots of Sorel. When they carried it up the, the next week, people had drunk more Sorel than anything in the building. More wow. than Campari, more than more than Bacardi, more than any of the big brands. Like in my mind, I knew in my mind I knew what was right, and I could only go forward from there. And so once it really exploded, how many, like you really expanded quite quickly? We got, uh, so here's what happened. Uh, in September of 2012, Lucky Magazine put us in their gift guide and called Sorel, quote, the gift to give in multiples. At which point I was getting a request not for bottles, but for pallets from around the country. Jesus. And then a miracle happened. Uh, Hurricane Sandy hit. It wasn't a good miracle. It destroyed my distillery. Six feet of seawater in the basement, five feet on the first floor. All the equipment, all the commodities, uh, everything destroyed. The building, 186-year-old building, could ma- took major structural damage. Uh, FEMA didn't pay a dime. Insurance didn't pay a dime. Oh. Six months in. Yay. <sighs> Uh, put the whole thing back together with basically nothing but uh, determination. And we launched in January of 2013 uh, and went from me hand-delivering bottles across Manhattan to distribution in 13 states. So uh, you ate the stick-to-itiveness. <laughs> do, you, do you find in this day and age um, with entrepreneurs and stuff – you you have talked about monetization, but the monetization is always like the fifth or sixth thing you say. It's always about this is my goal, this is my path, this is what I want to do, and monetization is always last. Now, monetization is important when you have a passion project because it keeps the lights on. Right. But this this sort of drive and this complete and utter um, confidence in yourself to keep pushing and keep pushing because a lot of people could have just said after uh after hurricane sandy like okay well that was a that was a nice run I, I, you know i don't know if i i don't know if it's confidence i just think i'm out of my goddamn mind <laughs> truth and, and 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 i say that i i remember having a conversation with the cfo of a large distributor sitting down running numbers and he told me that my numbers felt aggressive. And I said to this guy, they need people like you to run successful companies. They need assholes like me to start them. <laughs> Guys like you would never hire me. But at some point, I will be hiring somebody like you. <laughs> Man, that's awesome. I'm, I, regardless of the technical issues, I am fucking loving this podcast. You're, you're dropping so many mics. You're just dropping truth bombs that I'm just like, I, I'm not sure where I should go after this. Uh, again, I, I'm an asshole, but I know what kind of asshole I am. <laughs> so I recently on, this is what really hooked me, is that uh, recently on Clubhouse again, if you don't know what Clubhouse is, it's a, an amazing platform that I'm really enjoying and I, I know you are too. You're moving the distillery now from Brooklyn to the Caribbean. Two things. Moving the distillery out of New York proper because right now case sales don't just by having a physical location in New York City. It's just way too expensive. That's fair. Unless you have a visitor center or a gastropub 
or something or something subsidizing your sales, it's just not worth it. Like Alan Katz was smart. Alan Katz opened up New York Distilling and, and led with the shanty, mm -hmm. the bar connected by it. And the shanty subsidized uh, case sales until case sales caught up. So for the moment, we're going to move production out of New York City proper. Uh, but uh, the Barbados thing is going to be separate. The PM, the Prime Minister of Barbados, reached out to me and wants to bring Sorel home. They love the idea that a, a child of the children of Barbados took this thing that is theirs and brought it to the world. My grandparents emigrated to this country from Barbados exactly a century ago. They got to America in 1920. Uh, so now they want to, the government of Barbados wants to build, they want me to build a distillery in Barbados so it can be made with local ingredients and by local hands, which, you know, to them completes the circle. It, it's taken something that was from there. My grandparents left to figure out how to make a better life for, the, for their children. Now we can bring the whole thing back home. Wow. And Barbados is not a bad idea right now, considering this entire fucking country is frozen. Yeah. <laughs> so will you be spending your time between Barbados and New York, obviously, when that sort of gets kicked off? The plan is to be a commuter, but I will tell you that the former uh, Ministry of Finance for, of Barbados has volunteered to be my, my operations director. So we'll have good people on the ground. And the idea is that the Barbados will become the distribution hub for the Caribbean. So every hotel in the Caribbean, every uh, duty-free shop, it, we, we're looking to really see the world out of Barbados. That is incredible. It's it's going to turn very much into like the sort of Bermudans and uh, Goslings and and Havana and Havana Club and Cuba and oh that's that's that is amazing. Were you shocked? Well, I keep asking these questions like, were you shocked? But then I know your answer is probably going to be like, nope. I knew exactly it was going to happen. <laughs> well, it's it's not that I knew it was going to happen. It I I did not see it coming, but I don't I don't have the ability to be shocked. That part of me is broken. And and and, and I, don't know, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but I, here, here, here's, 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 here's the truth of it. Uh, I'm uh, religiously Taoist, and being Taoist means you don't ever think about the result. You focus on the process. If I'm focused on the process, the result should take care of itself. You don't try to win awards you don't try to win a claim you try to make sure that you're intently doing the best thing at that moment whatever the moment is the rest just happens so with covid and everything that happened in 2020 um it's been interesting with 2021 opening everybody's like happy new year i'm like well it's still the same like it's just a day after what was happening last year so it's not like the the meta metaphorically speaking reset of the year uh, when it came around how how has that changed your business obviously we were talking off camera about you looking after your mom and that being very important to you about l minimizing travel minimizing going out and socializing and all that sort of stuff which some people do and some people not so much but during covid what how business wise how did it sort of change and the direction of everything sort of go well two two really good things happened during covid as far as i can tell 
The first is retail sales all, 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 all across the board went up 7%. Wow. Retail completely covered the loss of what would have been on-premise. Anyone who knows the business tells you that you get, you, you create your market on-premise, but you move cases off-premise. So the people who had the right percentage of on-to-off-premise, they did really well the last year. There are some very highly visible brands that are like 90% on-premise <laughs> and 10% retail. It's not a model that did well the last year. No. We've always been like 65% off-premise, 35% on. So, the again, the companies that had good retail showings, they they managed. They managed. Uh, the way the math looks right now, we're going to see a very, very strong uh, holiday season because by then people will be ready to get the fuck out of their <laughs> houses and we'll be vaccinated. Uh, but the other really good thing for me is it let me focus on other things I do. For example, I'm a writer and educator. So my first book is due out sometime this year. And I was able to really write. And uh, and it's an interesting thing about having the two feet in different worlds. You can sell a lot of booze and make a lot of money, and no one really knows who you are. And you can sell a lot of books uh, and make no money, but people will be familiar. You'll be familiar to the public. But if I can... Can make my name in the public, and 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 use that to leverage booze. That's an ideal situation. What's the book about? Oh, the book is about social justice fatigue. It's called The Garden of Infinite Fucks. <laughs> of course, it is. <laughs> uh, and it is about how you have to. It is about protecting your energy again, based in Taoism, but knowing you know, what to give a fuck about and when to mind your fucking business so you don't ever run out of fucks because you need fucks. <laughs> oh, my God. I love you so much right now. Um, <laughs> so we, we talked about this. You were very, like talking about giving fucks and stuff um, with a lot of events sort of this hybridized online and in-person stuff like that. Um, direction for Tales of the Cocktail, BCB, and stuff like that. I know that recently you were very vocal on Facebook about, like, why are we planning in-person events still for 2021? Because are we, are, we, are we being socially responsible right now? And I think it's obviously that you're a very big champion for the, the CSR of your company and obviously our industry now. Um, where do you see like our industry going in the way of like that social fatigue and like actually understanding where we're going to be over this 2021 and early 2022 as, as an industry as a whole? Again, two different lines of thoughts happening here. The first is I definitely think that companies are going to, to take a structurally different approach to uh, things like conventions moving forward. Not that we don't all want to love and hug and drink with each other in person, but I think that there's going to be an epigenetic scar with everyone who's had to endure the last year and a half. And we're going to do things differently and hopefully smarter and better. Uh, no one's looking to have a repeat of this. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you know, and not not that we want to get out back to bars, but you can't sell stuff to dead people. So whatever precautions we take now, you, again, you can't make a you can't make a case for doing the right thing. All you can tell companies is you will lose money. Yeah, because people will die. Uh, as far as the content of these uh, conventions, I I am a co-chair for the Education Committee for the Tales of the Cocktail Convention, and I was and might be again uh, a co-chair for uh, BarConf in Brooklyn. And the nature of the content needed to change. We, for many, many years talked about how to make a daiquiri and, you know, how to be a better brand ambassador. And and COVID fucked all of that up. You know, I will tell you that as late as June of last year, Tail still had brand ambassador seminars on their curriculum. And the members of the education committee said, you can't, you can't, you can't give this seminar. Brand ambassadors are sitting home right now wondering if they're going to get fired. Yeah. No one is out there doing you Like, if the content isn't relevant, don't do it. And we made them redo the curriculum from scratch, uh, which is good because it's all relevant stuff. We're going to come out of COVID, and we're going to see people that have substance abuse issues in ways they didn't have before. And uh, people that have their sense of self has been diminished because it was tied to their productivity Mm -hmm. and they haven't been productive in a year. You're going to see people that have financial questions. Like we need to figure out how to take, how to take care of ourselves as individuals. We're going to assume people can make cocktails. We're going to assume that you know how to garnish your cocktail. We're going to assume you know the difference between a rye and a bourbon. We're going to assume that you know, you know, the basics and want to help you make your life better. But do you know how to make our lives better? Our industry will improve. But do you know how to do your taxes? Do you need to know how to look after yourself? Do you know how to budget? Basic life stuff. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. My a lot of the seminars, especially last year, were definitely geared away from like, oh, cocktail history and stuff like that. To how do you do a side hustle and how do you like create side hustles and revenue streams and stuff like that. I'm actually doing a seminar next week on creating different revenue streams personally and as a business. Yeah. So I, I definitely agree. I think we get caught up in the gleam and like romance of our industry and drinking at the Monteleone and, and that sort of thing, but sort of miss some pretty big life skills as industry people. This industry needs therapy. <laughs> and do. I don't mean I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I think most people would benefit from therapy. But again, like we don't even have health insurance, most of us. So there are real human issues that we need to talk about. And we need we needed a broader perspective. So, you know, the nice thing about Tails is I think we have a not not we're not there yet, but it's a wider perspective than we've ever had before. It's more international. Mm-hmm. It's more women. It's more queer. It's more diverse. Uh, there are less people that fit into what would be considered uh, the norm because the fact of the matter is the norm is a minority 
and it always has been. Like, like here's a good example. I'm super excited that we have a member of of our of our committee coming in, who is not like uh, a a a cocktail bar bartender. She's a high end uh, chain waitress bartender. Why don't we have the chain? Like everyone started off at chains. Why, <laughs> why, did. why? Why aren't they represented in these conversations? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm super excited to get her perspective because she's not at this, you know, twenty seat cocktail bar with you know twenty other cocktails. She's working at like a Fridays. Yeah, and that's all she's done for twenty years, and she's good at it. The idea that we're discluding that whole section of the industry is ridiculous to me. I always do find it interesting because I always talk about cocktail culture as being such a small niche that maybe 10% of the population in your city actually gets it at all. Right. And, then, and I go to a lot of bigger like hotel hospitality shows and you go into those rooms and there's like 100,000 square feet of dishwashers and laundry and the speakers up on stage are CEOs of hotels. And then just off in the little corner is the cocktail section and like maybe the beer and wine section. It's just this tiny little annex in this big grand scheme of things. Cocktail people need to get their heads out of their collective asses and, and, and understand there's a bigger picture at play. So let's, let's, I, I, I could literally talk to you for fucking ever. I really could, no, but I think, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll schedule this again because we can, we can do this and hopefully without the tech issues next time. Oh, I think there's definitely going to be a part two, but the part two is definitely going to be face to face over a drink somewhere. Ugh. And that that's like, I think I, I think we were having technical issues, but I had a really long list of people that I, I had on a list that I was like, I'm not going to do it via zoom or phone call. I'm going to do it face to face because they're friends or mentors or peers. And I really just wanted to be a face to face competition, a conversation, but obviously this is the world now and yeah. I don't mind streaming, but just loses something. Yeah. So for you, you're, completely inspiring not just as a as a operator as an entrepreneur as everything like i i hope that there's a lot of young bartenders and and industry people out there that see you and hopefully aspire to push themselves a little bit further to break to to break that that voice in their head to break that sort of mentality in their head that you've obviously broken a long time ago of like I can do this because I'm passionate about it. I want it. I don't end the process over result. What's what's the the next 18, 12, 12 to eighteen months look like for Jackie Summers? Uh, there's a significant new investment coming into the company, so we've got a complete relaunch of Sorel. I'm really excited about that. Uh, I will be building a distillery in Barbados and launching out of the Caribbean. I'm excited about that. Uh, there will be a book that comes out sometime in the fall. I'm excited about that. Uh, My big goal is to redistribute wealth. It bothers me that we work in an industry that makes so much money and so many people suffered needlessly over the last year and a half because they were working in a way that was never sustainable. Our industry makes trillions of dollars. The idea that there are people who have to figure out how they're going to eat or whether or not they can live in their apartment another month is is immoral. It's wrong. I would like to see 
people like you and me who actually are on the street putting in the fucking work get remunerated for what they actually do. So my job is to figure out how to take some of this money that's, you know, clearly accumulating on, on the top and, and actually spread it out to people like us so that we get to actually live without all this extra stress. Because there's enough. There's enough for everybody. There's more than enough. Uh, so, yeah, the long-term plan for me and the thing that's, that's ultimately going to both make me unpopular and really popular, I, I need to focus on wealth redistribution. Mm-hmm. Our industry makes so much money, more people that look like us should have access to it. 100%. Um, are you going to do an audio book for, your, uh, for the, the, the book? Please do an audio book and please be the one that reads it. So it's going to be an illustrated book for adults. It's going to... <laughs> Uh, it's gonna be it. It the audio book would be fun, but this 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 needs pictures. Okay. It needs pictures. Now I'm really intrigued about what the pictures are gonna be in in this book. Um, Jackie, thank you so much. I know we had some technical difficulties in there that lost a little momentum, but I think we got it back. You're absolutely uh, amazing. I'm uh, I'm I really enjoy listening to you on Clubhouse. Uh, it's sort of like a listening to a panel discussion or something like that. Um, just inspiring. I just, I, I'm, I'm lost for words. I just, I'm, I'm mentally exhausted. Um, you're absolutely epic, and uh, thank you so much. Listen, anytime you, you got a, anytime you got a slot to fill, let me know, and we'll, and we'll be, we'll, we'll improvise. Done. I'm up for it. All right. For it. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. I really appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Stay warm. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening, Pose Shifters. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoy sitting down with friends and peers and uh, just chatting about the industry and getting down to the nuts and bolts of what's really going on out there. Uh, Make sure you like, subscribe, comment, everything on all the platforms. Just hit it up and I'll do my best to answer any queries or questions you have. I'll see you next week, guys. Bye.